0: Well, uh, I invite you to read our gospel reading with us. And children, uh, you're welcome to go with uh, Miss Lois in the back there. Um, oops. Let me grab that. Uh, from our gospel reading today is uh, from John chapter one, and we're going to read 35 to 42. It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. (laughs) Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are in this final week of discussing this discipleship path. And Andra has very helpfully uh, printed up this summary here that's in your, uh, in your bulletin. If you want to see it, it's, at the top it says, what are those 21 practices? Because last week I kept referring uh, to these 21 habits and practices. Um, and A, I don't expect anybody to keep them all in their mind. Uh, b i don 't even think I read them, so uh, there was no way for you to keep them in your mind if, in that way so we 've got them kind of in print here, uh, but we 're talking about sort of six um, sort of movements, so the first is this goal that our goal in discipleship is a life freed and empowered to joyfully love god i don 't know if you ever thought about that when you came to christ um, that you come to Christ and that it, it seems like you're ready to love God, but pretty soon, um, like that seed that's scattered out across the different kinds of soil, things come up. <laughs> we call it life, right? Things come up on this way of joyfully and freely loving God. And so the goal of, as we think about discipleship, the goal is to say, okay, how do we free ourselves up? How do we free one another up to be able to purposefully love God? How do we give it, give each other the power to be able to do that? Because sometimes we're trying to do it and we don't have the power, right? We don't have the capacity. We don't have the the strength in ourselves to do it. And we don't simply want to do this because we're supposed to, uh, quote unquote, but we want to do this joyfully, right? With a kind of um, hope and, and that sort of uh, Joyful force as we seek to love God. Second, every disciple's true home is the household of God. Contrary uh, to the cultural narrative, uh, which would tell us something different, we are not really home if we are not in the church. We are not really home if we're not living in the community of Christ who says, I have given you my body. It might seem a little strange, Uh, But the church is the body of Christ, which is given to us. It's why he gives us this meal, which is his body and his blood. And then he says he sends his spirit to enliven us, right? You can kind of, uh, you can get all of the parts together, but if you don't have the spirit that actually binds it together and lifts all things up and gives the church its life, then you don't have the home. But the New Testament tells us um, the church is, the household of God. Then we move into these virtues. What, how exactly am I to grow? Right? So we name seven things, faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. No, temperance. Um, uh, you see, this is two lines. Okay, anyway. Um, faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. These seven areas that we can kind of look at our life and go, okay, maybe I'm pretty good at courage. Right? I'm good at stepping out and doing hard things, but I'm not so good at temperance. I'm not so good at patience. Right? Or I'm not so good at um, loving people. That's <laughs> kind of important. Right? And so we want to take these things, and we can sort of examine our life in that way and say where? We could look at it as where am I deficient, deficient. I'd encourage you to say, boy, where has God gifted me? God's given me the gift of faith. Not everybody has that gift. right? God's given me the gift of of uh, courage or or of wisdom and justice, this sense of what's right and what's wrong in the world, not everybody has that gift. That's a good thing. Bring that gift to the body of Christ, right? Bring that gift to the household of God. As we look at what we do day to day or week to week, we want to focus on those habits, worship, prayer, study, witness, community, right? And then these 21 practices. This has taken us a month and a half to get through. So if this feels quick, you know, I'm going through this in six minutes. Uh, but this has been six weeks. Uh, so uh, these practices could be anything like prayer, scripture reading, fasting, Christian community, healthy living. It does matter. You, if you love Jesus, you will eat kale. Okay? That's just kind of how it goes. Uh, Sabbath, uh, celebration of the sacraments, visiting the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting the imprisoned and freeing the captive, comforting the grieving and burying the dead and the godly use of resources. (gasps) Prayer for others, instructing the ignorant, counseling the doubtful, admonishing the sinner, forgiving offenses, comforting the afflicted. Did I say that twice? I don't know. And bearing patiently with those who wrong us, right? I say all of those things not to make it feel like, oh man, there's this heavy weight. I've got to do all this stuff all the time. I say all of those things to say, look, there is a wide expanse Of how you can follow Christ and where Christ might be calling you. Let's not get locked in on there's this, there's like two things I'm gonna do if I really love Jesus. I'm gonna feed the hungry and read my Bible, right? No, there's this huge, big picture. Sometimes, um, I'm helping Coach Emmaus' soccer team right now, and sometimes it's like seven year olds, they, they just, they don't know, right? They're like, I gotta score goals. It's the only thing that helps. I can be a goalie, and that's nice because I don't have to run, but then everybody's kicking things at me, and that's not that fun. Or I can be somebody who's out there scoring goals, and that's basically all I can do. And part of what you're doing as a coach is trying to get these 7- and 8-year-olds to realize you know, making a good pass is as important as being the one who puts it in the net, right? Being in position on defense is as important, maybe more important, because not everybody wants to do that. Being in a position on defense is as important as doing the thing that's going to get everybody excited, gets everybody to cheer, right? And so this is a little bit of that. As Christians, we might sort of lift up certain practices as this is the way, right? But partially, I want us to see God has called us into this wide expanse of how to follow him. So we're going to do this last week, and this one is just called the path. You can write that down in that blank space there. And there's four pieces to it. They all come from the Gospel of John. Two of them you saw today um, in John chapter 1. Well, and actually we're going to read just a little bit further so you can can see it. But uh, the first step is this thing. Well, let let me kind of back up here. I don't want to jump in that just yet. I want to tell you a story about a few people. When I was in high school, I went to a church in Santa Rosa. Uh, That's where we lived. Um, So that's where I went to church. And um, there was a woman there whose name is Janice Karahadian. She was, on a good day, she was four foot nine. um, And little Armenian lady uh, who had grown up in San Francisco. Her parents had had immigrated from Armenia. And she'd grown up in San Francisco. Uh, My sister said she had pillow arms. Uh, which meant that it was, she, was, she would come and hold your hand, but she was, she was like she's a, a plump, kind of like mid- 70s lady, and she was it was really nice to hold her hand because they were always warm and they were really fluffy. Um, <laughs> and, and her arms were just nice and soft, and she would kind of cuddle up and because and we were the pastor's kids, you know she'd she'd kind of grab us and she'd have things to say to us. And she looked really nice on the outside, right? But um, uh, then she would give you a job. Every time she saw you, she'd give you a job. So it starts with, you know, she's like slipping you candy. That that's how things start. And then all of a sudden she's got this other thing that she's slipping you which were these little paper cards um that had Bible verses on them. And she had gotten these I don't know where. She had ordered them from somewhere. And and they would you know they were like perforated and you could see the little perforated edges and she'd pull them out and she would put them in her pocket or in her wallet or whatever and then she'd be standing in the grocery line just memorizing Bible verses all the time, and she probably had 150 or 200 Bible verses memorized. She's in her mid 70s and 80s and she's like this spunky little spitfire woman and she would come up to us every week. Did you memorize that Bible verse I gave you? And we would shamefully kind of look away and. Like, no, but I'll take the candy uh, and. you know, and and the thing about Janice is she always kind of had this, she was calling you into something, right? She accepted you for where you were at, but she knew that wasn't the best you could be. <laughs> and she was pushing you a little bit harder. She took us, um, I'll always sort of remember the afternoon, she piled us all into her van. There are six in my family, and then her. So every seat in her little van, was taken up, a seven-seater. She put down a phone book and then a cushion on top of the phone book so that she could see, not over, but through the steering wheel. Uh, (laughs) Can I get a witness? And and drove us all around San Francisco and told us what it was like in the 40s and the 50s when she was growing up there and into kind of the early 60s, which you can imagine was a wild time in San Francisco. Uh, But she had all sorts of stories. We're driving you know, down the coast, and she's like, this is what the beach used to be like, and this is the cafes that we used to go to. She was, and so I sort of had that afternoon of her being a tour guide, right? But she was doing that all the time. She was just kind of leading us into something else in the Christian life, right? So often it's at at one point it was come and see this place where I lived, this city that I love. And then, really, it was come and see my Savior Jesus, who I love so much. And here's how I'm going to show him to you. Here's a Bible verse. (laughs) Get it memorized. Because it's going to come back to you at a time that you need it, she would always say. And so the first step is this idea of kind of come and see. She cared for us, she loved us. She would take us as teenagers, she'd take us out to lunch and just listen, right? But she had this this sense of, I want to call you into that next step, that next step of discipleship. And it's it's really easy. You know, we were pastor's kids. It's really easy to assume that somebody else is doing it. It's really easy to assume that somebody else is doing that thing for that person. And really, they probably aren't. (laughs) There's probably nobody inviting them into that next step of discipleship. So I just encourage you, if, if you have that little, maybe it's somebody inviting you, come and see, but maybe you've got that little thumb in your back that says, be a Janus, and go invite somebody in deeper. And even if they seem like somebody who's got it all figured out and they're just a nice kid and they're gonna, just going to be great, they might not be, and they might need you to step in and take make that move. The second person, uh, after kind of moving through this phase of discovery, the second person, and again, this was when I was in Santa Rosa as a teenager, uh, Joel Tippett was my youth pastor who got hired, and I don't know, I really don't know why my dad hired this guy. Um, he, <laughs> he was fairly wild. Uh, and I, the first time I ever hung out with him by myself <laughs> Uh I told myself I wasn't gonna tell this story. So we are driving down highway 12. Uh, and as we're we're driving down the road at about 65 miles an hour. Uh, and he had grown up in Southern California, as like a skater kid and and you know, just kind of done all the wild stuff, whatever you did in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um and uh as we're coming down the road, he goes, Wait a second, this car's a rental. <laughs> and Pulls the e-brake <laughs> as the car just kind of like skids and, and, and then looks at me and goes, promise me you'll never tell your dad I did that. Uh, which I didn't until he had left the area. <laughs> and and I, I tell that story just to say, Joel was like, he never put me, I don't think, in physical danger like that again. Uh, and I've never done anything like that with any of your children, I promise. Uh, but he had this sense of like adventure. He had this sense of, like, let's just try something because it might be fun. Um, like, let's just walk out and discover what happens. And so my last couple years of high school, I'm sort of in this, in this place and in this season where it's like, okay, let me hang out with this guy, um, in part because he's just older and cooler and that's kind of nice. But also he was inviting me into his life. Like, here I am, a 16, 17-year-old kid, who's pretty uncertain about the world, and he's inviting me into the stuff that brings him joy. He's inviting me into the scriptures with him. He's inviting me uh, into this kind of like sometimes bad decisions that he would make. I ultimately was a groomsman in his wedding, which was a little strange but really wonderful. He just sort of opened up the door to say, come see what my life is really like. Come see what it's actually like to serve and follow Christ, even in those places where I mess up, even in those places where I don't understand, even in those places where I'm uncertain. And so that first move is this idea of come and see. I just want to introduce you. The second is this idea of come follow me. And if you want somebody to follow, you have to be seen by them, right? If somebody's going to follow you, they are going to know what time you get up in the morning. They're going to know what you do with your downtime. They're going to know how you are when you're hungry and tired and lonely and all those kinds of things, right? They're going to know that. And that's going to become, for good or for ill, a part of your witness. So come and see and come follow me. The third kind of step, there's four, is this idea of come and be with me. After I graduated high school and went to Point Loma, um, I, I was there for a couple years, and or about a year and a half. And um, Long story, I ended up moving off campus and moving next door to this church. So imagine, um, like, I mean, I was going to say the duplexes on the other side. It was even closer than that, um, into this kind of intern house. That, that was basically connected to the church. And I lived there for for three and a half, four years uh, through the rest of college and, and until I went off to seminary. And while I was there, a big part of it was I got to spend deep, deep time with my pastor and professor. And, and it was exactly that kind of thing. It was a come and follow me, but it was more than that. I, I house sat for him. I was the youth pastor to his children. I We would... I saw the guy probably every day. And even now it's not we don't like talk on the phone or anything like that, but when we see each other, it's just good to be together. Right? And so there's this sense of come and be with me. This is John or this is Jesus in John 14 where he tells his disciples, I'm going away, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Cuz in my father's house there are many rooms. It's this sense of, I I want to be present with you. I actually want to live with you. Jesus is not a kind of, um, like, principle. (laughs) He's not an idea. He's not a, a concept that we kind of have in our heads and just thank God for that he shows up and kind of makes sense of the world. He's a person who desires to live with us and know us and love us and to be loved by us. And so if you think of discipleship, if you think of the faith in any way that is not you loving Jesus and being loved by him, you've missed the mark. You've missed the mark. This is the way Jesus calls us. Come and see who I am. And then come and follow me. And then just come and be with me and witness it and, and live in my life as I live in your life, which leads us to the last point, which is to abide, to remain in me. At the end of my time in San Diego, I had a, a significant relationship in my life that broke up. And I was, I was kind of wrecked. I uh, was probably not at my highest. Um, and I spent hours. There was a 24-hour coffee shop not far from my apartment that I would go sit in. And um, and it was that same pastor had kind of recommended this passage to me, but he recommended John 15. And I would just sit in that coffee shop and read and memorize Jesus' words to his disciples right before he died. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. Remain in me. Put your life into me the way a vine branch, a grapevine, puts its life into the root. And my life will flow into your life. And if you expect there to be any fruit or any good that comes out of your life, it's not going to come by trying real hard and squeezing your fists and closing your eyes and saying, please grow grapes, please grow. It's going to come as you rest, as you abide, as you make your home here with me. And so you see this kind of, these four steps, come and see, come follow me, come be with me, and come remain in me. In some ways, they're all the same step, (laughs) right? You can even go back in John chapter 1. I, uh, let's see, verse 35. The next day, Jesus was standing with two of, or John was standing with two of his disciples. This is such a great scene. And the two disciples, uh, or John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they don't tell him what they're seeking. They just say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, this is obscured to us in English, but in Greek, where are you staying means where are you dwelling, where are you abiding, where is your house, right? When Jesus gets to the end of his time with these very same disciples, what does he tell them in John 15? Dwell, abide in me. You were looking for my home, and I'm here to tell you that I am your home. I am the place that you should take up residence. My, Your life is here in me. The invitation to these disciples to come and be a part of Christ's band of followers causes them to leave everything. They leave their jobs, they leave their families in some cases, they leave their homes, and they go wandering around the Galilean countryside with this rabbi who is saying some increasingly disturbing things, who is beginning to insinuate that he's not just a good rabbi to follow, but that he is the Messiah, and that even as the Messiah, he's going to die. Either of these things would kind of throw you off if you're a disciple. Jesus is saying both of them simultaneously, and also abide in me. And you have have to imagine these 12 disciples, as they seek to follow Christ, are not sure. Remember, he hasn't been raised from the dead yet. These proofs that we base our life on, these disciples don't have it. They're not sure. I don't think that he is who he says he is the invitation into Christ's to be a disciple of Christ is an invitation to risk it's an invitation to be vulnerable it's an invitation to go into that place where you might be in trouble where you could get hurt and the people around you could get hurt And yet, we don't take up this life of discipleship because it seems like a decent thing to do on Sunday mornings or it's a a good way to be a nice citizen in the world. We take up this life of discipleship because it's all-encompassing, because it takes all of who we are. It, It changes everything about who we are. When we come to Jesus, he's not a nice addition to a happy life. If that's who you think Jesus is, he's going to turn you upside down. We take up this journey and this path because discipleship takes all of us. It takes us at our most risky and tender spots and requires much of us. And yet it's the best possible thing we could do. In the chapters just following this, Jesus meets two people. The one of them is a total insider. He's a Pharisee. He's like the guy who, like, if he ran for mayor, would get elected immediately, right? Like, everybody knows who this guy is, respects him, sees him. He is, he's it, right? His name's Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and and he actually has to come to Jesus at night because it would have been shameful for him to get caught talking to Jesus. And they have this conversation, and you know about this conversation because this is where John 3.16 comes from. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But what Jesus says in this conversation to Nicodemus is that you must be born again of water and of the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying to Nicodemus, externally it looks like you have everything together and yet I am calling you into a place of risk. I'm calling you into a place of vulnerability. You have everything to lose by following me. Everything. You could lose your family, you could lose your respect, you could lose all your security in this world, and yet I'm still calling you to this path. The chapter after that, he talks to a Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman who um, has a dodgy reputation, a woman who nobody looks on and thinks of her as an example for anything except an example of what not to do. She's the wrong color, she's the wrong gender, she lives in the wrong place, She, she has the wrong friends, she's had five husbands, and is living with a guy who is not currently her husband. Externally, she literally has nothing to lose by following Jesus. What's she giving up? Nothing. She has nothing in this world, she's just hanging on. And yet Jesus calls her to exactly the same thing that he just called Nicodemus to. To a life that follows Christ in spirit and in truth. Both of them are called to risk rejection for Christ. Like the disciples of John 1, there's a way forward with Christ, but it's going to cost them much. And this is the essential nature of the call. There is no life in Christ Without discipleship, and I'm afraid that that's I'm afraid that that's what we've done with faith. <laughs> we've made the faith out to be something you can believe in your head and confess with your mouth. And now I'm in a place where it just is good forever. But that belief and that confession is is not simply a public act. That's something that changes who we are. It calls us into this life. It calls us to risk everything and open up those parts of our lives that we're scared to open up, and yet Jesus is so gentle and so tender and so good. But we've got to take that step. We've got to take that step to move in this, what I'd like to call, an adventure of holiness. come and see, to come follow Jesus, to come be with Jesus and to remain in him. I don't know where you think you are on that path. But it's possible and the danger of of talking about steps at all is that we think of them as things that we complete. Right? Early in our faith we come and see then we learn to follow, then we learn to be, and then we remain. And from remain on, we're just we're just done. But that's not the kind of holiness that we're talking about. Paul talks about going from glory to glory to glory. And in our faith, we're convinced that because Jesus is raised from the dead, the new age has, has broken into this age. And so, I don't know if we... Totally get this, but eternity is available to us now. Yes. To move in the glory, from glory to glory to glory, is, is open to us now, and it's, it's part of why we preach such a, I think of it as a, a positive or a, uh, an optimistic gospel. We're not condemned to a life of sin and failure until we die and God fixes it. God has broken into this age And so the idea of, well, I'm just going to put off discipleship. I'm just going to put off following Jesus because it's easier for me to believe in Jesus now and let him fix it later. No, he has called us into this adventure of holiness in this very moment. And these steps to come and see, to come and follow, to be with Jesus, to remain in Jesus, ultimately they just lead back to one another rather than being like, you know, we get to the top of the mountain and we're done. This is kind of, I think of it as a spiral. Like, you might be, you know, in the, in the coming, you might be in the remain in me moment, and then you discover all of a sudden that you're a beginner again. That Jesus is calling you into new depths or new heights of this faith. For me, I, I think about those four steps in my own life, and it just covers five or six years. Right From the time I was middle high school to the time I'm done with college. But guess what? Then I went off somewhere else, and I was back at come and see. And I'm like, oh, this is new (laughs) and wonderful and exciting and deepening and joyful and scary and risky. (laughs) Right? So then we start the journey all over, and that's what it is. We think we have it figured out as kind of a single person. Then we get married. We think we have it figured out as a spouse, and then we have kids. We think we have it figured out as a parent, and then we move off to serve somewhere. Like, we just continue to discover these things. And so, allow yourself to be wherever you are. Are you in that moment of Jesus saying, just be with me? Or is he inviting you into some fresh, exciting thing? Some new glory in your relationship with him, in your interaction with the church? Is he calling you to follow and to take risks, to lay down some comfort that you have and to step into a new space? Or is he simply saying, remain in me? We discover along the way, as we walk those steps, that we're a part of a community and a tradition that's walking them with us. I try to think of ways to explain this to people. Maybe this is the best way I have. I don't know. It's the best way I have this morning. <laughs> um, I watched a movie this weekend uh, that when I started it, my wife went, What are you watching? <laughs> You're watching that? It was a surf movie called Chasing Mavericks. It's I don't know, it came out a few years ago. Um and uh I I've seen it before. I I actually I really like it. It's about the first um one of the first. He was like 16 when he surfed Mavericks, which is um, outside of of kind of Monterey, Santa Cruz area. It's this giant. It's one of these big wave um, surf breaks, 30, 40 foot waves, right? They only come a few times a year, and they will kill you if you're not ready. Uh, <laughs> if you're not ready to actually do it, it's it's thousands of thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of water crashing down on you um, if you don't do this right, you know. And the sane response to this, it's like Jaws and Maui or whatever, some of these breaks that are out there, the sane response to this for all of us is, why, right? Like, why would you go do that? Why would you put yourself in that kind of danger? Why would you step out into that risk? Why would you put yourself in that place? Um, and Jay Moriarty, the surfer that the movie talks about, um, he gets excited and he says, He says, I know that when I hit that wave and when I drop into that drop, again, 30 feet, so I don't know, stack a couple of these buildings up on top of each other, and he's flying down that thing on a surfboard with nothing between him and the water, moving like 50, 55, 60 miles an hour. He says, I know when I make that drop, I will become a part of it. I'll become a part of the wave. And I I don't necessarily get it. I've I've hung out around some surfers. I've surfed like twice. It's not a thing that has like sparked my imagination in the same way. I've got things in my life that do that, but it's not waves, right? But, and certainly not mavericks, right? Yeah, but the point is, is that people in that moment, in that place get called into this kind of larger thing and here's the thing mavericks is just a wave right it's you you learn to surf and you get on a surfboard and you paddle out and a wave comes and somebody pushes you into it and you learn to stand up and you fall down in the water right and then you go do those three or four things over and over and over and you do them on progressively bigger and faster and harder waves and then one day all of a sudden maybe hopefully not, you're surfing Mavericks, right? But you're still doing the same thing. You're paddling out through some crazy water that might kill you. Uh, You're (laughs) getting into position. You're dropping in. But here's my point. It's all the same thing at a different scale. It's all the same thing with a different kind of risk, with a different kind of vulnerability. And as you get patterned into the life of what it is to be a surfer, you move through these kinds of phases where you're essentially doing the same thing at a different kind of level. And this is what it is to follow Christ. We do the same thing. We pray, we read scripture, we show up, we serve, we care, we love. But as we follow him deeper, we begin to do that at a deeper and higher and More adventurous, we'll call it, level. We begin to open up new parts of our life. So it's not just, God, I want you to make me happy, right? Now it's, God, I want to seek to serve you even when it doesn't make me happy, (laughs) right? It's not just, God, I want you to fix my problems. It's, Lord, I want you to work in me to be the solution to somebody else's problems. Or it's, Lord, I want to seek to love you even when that doesn't actually fix anything right we move through these kinds of phases of the Christian life and it's the same thing over and over but the deeper you go the better it gets the bigger the waves get the bigger the adventure gets the bigger the glory gets and so this adventure in holiness requires a commitment It requires a commitment to growth. It requires that you bind yourself to a community, to elders and people who can help you walk that road. Until we can say, like Jay Moriarty said, I become part of the wave, what's that goal of the Christian life? That Christ becomes all in all. That I would become, my life would be totally lost in Christ. That my life would be totally lost in Jesus, the one who said, come and see, come follow me. For many of us, the temptation is for us to go as far as we can with Christ according to how much we're willing to know ourselves. But there's that part of our life we don't want to open. That door, that closet, that little corner of the attic that we don't want to let Light into. There's that thing we don't talk about with anybody else, including ourselves sometimes. And the problem is, if we keep that stuff shut off from ourselves, we're also keeping Christ out. We're also keeping God shut out. And so for many of us, the risk, the challenge, the vulnerability is simply to saying, Hey, I am willing to be known. I am willing to have Christ's light shine even into the darkest, slimiest parts of who I am. Not because I trust that it's not going to hurt. It might hurt. But we trust that Christ is good. We trust that God loves us and will walk with us in that love. The call today as we come to the table, is to follow Jesus on this path, on this adventure, in this kind of ascending road of intimacy, and hope. To say, Lord, I want you in all of who I am. I want all of you. I want you to be all in all. I pray that we can come to the table with that, with that hope and that focus this morning.